couple of announcements here make sure that uh, everybody takes note of. Uh, I announced these on Sunday morning, but not everybody was in here Sunday morning. On uh, February, the weekend of February 24th and 25th, there will be a garage sale in order to raise money for the Camp Arete uh, project for the summer to help offset the costs of the, of the teens, um, especially the uh, tr- transportation costs. Uh, they're expecting the teens to be in attendance on that the weekend and to help on both of those days. Uh, they will be um, uh, it will be held at the Grace Bible Church Gymnasium at 13700 Schroeder Road here in Houston. Also, the week of May 27th to June 2nd, they'll be taking a group of volunteers up to Colorado to help uh, in the uh, uh, construction and erection of a, of a chapel there at the site that they rent, and this will also help offset the costs of the, um, of the, of the uh, week. Room and board for that is covered, and they're going to have an evening Bible class that's going to be taught by Todd Atwood as well as uh, Mark Perkins. So um, <clears throat> comment is made here that it's a family event, so everybody is welcome. Also, another reminder... Uh, if you're interested in going on the Israel trip, the information, the brochure is up on the uh, deanbible.org website, and um, <clears throat> it's uh, going to be, I think, the best trip yet in terms of a lot of a lot of things that we're doing that I haven't done before. So uh, uh, I think this is going to be a really good trip. Also, the Chafer Conference on March the uh, 12th through the 14th. Coming up, uh, make sure that's on your calendar. And the topic there is going to be on the role of the believer in the nation. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that if we sin, we're out of fellowship. When we're out of fellowship, that ongoing forward momentum produced by God the Holy Spirit, uh, when we walk by the Spirit, we're being filled by the Spirit, uh, continues. But when we sin, it stops. And to recover, we have to confess our sins to God, to be restored to fellowship, and to resume our forward momentum. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening, that we can come before your throne of grace and bring these, uh, uh, bring before you our requests as we have this evening in, in prayer meeting. Father, we're thankful that you have uh, given us a, a Redeemer who has opened the way that he is the mediator between you and us and that he is the one who has removed the uh, the veil uh, b- before your throne of grace that we may come before you boldly because of what he has accomplished on the cross and provided for us in terms of our complete uh, and total redemption. Father, we pray that as we study this evening that this will be a great opportunity for us to reflect upon uh, the way we are to serve you, and the level of devotion that we should have toward serving you. 
as reflected in that of the apostles in the early church. And Father, as we study, we pray that as we talk about different issues, point out different things, that we may have clarity from the Scripture as to how to handle whatever conflicts do arise in our lives in relation to authority, whether it be government, marriage, or family, or school, or work, or whatever the arena may be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and my focus continues to be in this chapter. Actually, the focus of the chapter is on uh, increased opposition in the early church. This began in chapter 4 with the opposition of the Sadducees and the other religious leaders in Israel to the proclamation of the resurrection. You will recall that as we studied that, we focused on this issue of when is it right for a Christian to uh, disobey God, or excuse me, to disobey authorities that God has established? And when is it right to disobey them and under what, what circumstances that might be? The Sanhedrin prohibited uh, Peter and John for proclaiming the gospel, and they made a statement there that they must obey God rather than man. Then it, it, they were finally released. Upon their release, they went back to the other disciples. They prayed a magnificent prayer in chapter 4, reflecting uh, Scripture, that there would be always be opposition to the proclamation of the gospel and proclamation of the reign of God over man because man is in rebellion against God. So the ultimate issue in life really is authority. The ultimate issue in life is the issue that was breached by Lucifer in eternity past when he sought to uh, exert his authority over God's authority and to live his way rather than God's way. And ever since then, uh, this is the ultimate issue. Are we going to follow God or follow our, the dictates of our, own, of our own soul and follow our own volition? And that is the issue for the creature. Are we going to submit to the authority of God or to our own authority. This is why the Scripture emphasizes authority and submission so much is because that principle is at the very core of every issue in life and is at the very core of our spiritual life. And whether that is being manifest in a sphere related to government, related to military, related to um, Family, marriage, family, the home, whether it has to do with a, an issue at school, at the workplace, or whether it's a spiritual issue, I would suggest that if we are honest with ourselves, that if we look at how we respond to authority in any of those spheres, it will tell us something about how we respond to authority in any other sphere. Because we tend to respond to authority out of our own sense of arrogance or humility. If we have genuine humility, then we will respond to authority on that basis. And if there is arrogance, then we will respond to authority on that basis. And so it won't ultimately matter whether that authority is in one sphere or another at some point or other. It usually um, it will usually reveal itself. So this is a very important issue and why the Scripture emphasizes this. Now, as I pointed out <clears throat> last time, there's a unique dimension 
to the assault on the church that is comes out in chapter 5, and that occurred with the introduction of a temptation uh, from Satan, as mentioned in verse 3. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the Scripture says. He is the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the tempter, Matthew chapter 3. He is the one who is uh, in opposition to God and the one who seeks to oppose everything that God is doing in human history. So he is the one ultimately behind every temptation, whether the temptation comes from him directly or indirectly through something in the cosmic system, or whether it is even more indirect through our own sin nature, it ultimately derives from Satan's rebellion against God. So we see the uh, emphasis on uh, satanic temptation in verse 3, and I mentioned the cosmic system. It's cosmic with a K coming from the Greek, meaning the system of thought that is manifested in all of Satan's thinking that is characterized by arrogance and antagonism to God, uh, arrogance in that the creature asserts his own authority over against God's antagonism in that any assertion of authority against God ultimately leads to antagonism and hostility to God's word, even though it may be cloaked in some pseudo-friendship at some point. Sooner or later, uh, the gloves will come off. Sooner or later, the disguise comes off. And sooner or later, it is clear uh, there's going to be clear antagonism and opposition to uh, the truth of God, to Christians, and to the clear presentation uh, of the gospel. That, man, that opposition continues in the remainder of this chapter. Chapter three, and chapter 3 focused on the healing and the results of the healing of the lame man. Chapter 4 represented the consequences of that in terms of the opposition of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 5, we see now internal opposition yielding to the temptation of Satan in the first 11 verses. And the result of that is that, verse 11 stated, the great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Two categories of people, the believers within the church, gain a new respect for the authority of God after the Holy Spirit uh, took the life of Ananias and Sapphira immediately uh, in the sin unto death because of their, uh, their deception. In verse 12, greater respect comes to the, the early church through the hands of the apostles because of the miracles that are done. These miracles were designed for the uh, apostles. They are the credentials of the apostles, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. They are the signs of an apostolic ministry in the early church. They were temporary. They were to provide credentials for the apostles and prophets in the early church who were the representatives of God upon the earth. With the death of the last apostle, which was the apostle John, uh, sometime between 95 to 100 A.D., the apostolic group passed from the scene of history, and we shifted from the early pre-canon apostolic period of the early church to what is referred to as the apostolic fathers, that is, those who were directly under the authority and ministry of the apostles in the early church, but they themselves were not uh, apostles. 
Through the apostles, there were many miracles that were performed among the people. There's a unity in the early church. Verse 13, I pointed out, is, is an interesting verse. None of the rest dared join them. That is, because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, there is a hesitancy to, among a certain number of people, to uh, officially associate with the early church. Yet at the same time, the number of those who are believing in Jesus as Messiah are increasing rapidly, as uh, pointed out in verse uh, 14. As that happened, there were those who were bringing the sick, the demon-possessed, uh, <clears throat> to the, dis- the disciples, and they were being healed, so much so that they just hoped that the shadow of Peter uh, passing by would fall on some of them. Now, this isn't a mystical thing. It was clear from, the, from the, both the ministry of Jesus and later even with the Apostle Paul that the power of the apostles was such that it affected more than just their, their uh, immediate volitional choice. And there were examples where people just came to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and they would be healed. Uh, same thing will happen later. And it's all the grace evidence provided by God of the truth of the message of the apostles. Then there's a reaction that sets in. This is where we start this evening. The reaction, the opposition, the order to cease and desist from proclaiming the gospel, God's direct countermanding of that order from the Sadducees, his order, direct order to the apostles to continue to proclaim the message of the gospel and their, the, the apostles being rearrested and tried again. All of this sets us up with another, another opportunity to look at this issue of when and under what conditions does the believer have the right and responsibility to uh, oppose or to disobey uh, established legitimate Authority. Now we read in verse 16. Um, <clears throat> now also, a multi- <clears throat> excuse me, uh, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Verse 18. And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Now, just a reminder, this is a repetition of what occurred at the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 4, we read about their first arrest. As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, as I pointed out when we first entered our study in Acts 4, that the aristocracy produced the Sadducees. The Sadducees came from an aristocratic base in Israel. It was a different base that produced the Sadducees than produced the Pharisees. And so they, the, the leadership in the temple, the high priesthood, came from the uh, group of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had a, had a specific doctrinal position. They were the liberal religious leaders in Israel. And one of the things they rejected was the eternality of the soul, the life of the soul after physical death, and the possibility of resurrection. 
They completely rejected any kind of future hope or resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Sometimes really bad puns, stick it in your mind and you'll remember that. Okay, we have the Sadducees. According to Josephus, there were three religious sects in Judaism in the first century. Now, we don't have any mention of the third group, which are called the Essenes. This is assumed by many scholars to be uh, the group that isolated themselves, separated themselves from uh, from the uh, rest of the population in Judea and lived in isolation in a somewhat uh, separated community down in, in the area of Qumran, down along the Dead Sea. These were the ones who hid many of the scrolls that were later found in 19... 19- uh, 47, 48, uh, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Qumran community is thought to be uh, identical with the group that uh, Josephus mentioned as the Essenes, although there is within uh, certain scholarly circles some debate over that. There's no mention of the Essenes in the New Testament. What you usually find from liberals is they try to make John the Baptist in his scene because he hung out down by the Jordan and he dressed differently and acted differently, but that's not necessarily true unless you come to the evidence of the text and history with a certain jaded uh, anti-supernatural, anti-revelation bias. Uh, The Sadducees were the second group that Josephus mentioned, Again, there's very little extra-biblical information about the Sadducees. Our only source of knowledge of the Sadducees are are the Bible. And so scholars who are, quote, objective want to say, well, we don't really know anything because the Bible kind of has a slanted viewpoint. Josephus was a Pharisee. He has a slanted viewpoint. We can't trust people who come from opposing points, positions to say anything that's true. So therefore, we can't trust them, and they bump out the New Testament, and they bump out Josephus, which is uh, just uh, just absurd. But this shows the arrogance of modern scholarship. Somebody who lives 2,000 years later actually knows more than anybody who lived at the time. Obviously, we all understand that. We're just so much more modern and so much better today. Um, I'm really enjoying reading a recent book that came out on Jerusalem called Jerusalem a biography by uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore, who is a well-noted writer, a historian. He's been nominated for many uh, literary prizes. He's a tremendous writer. He tells a great story. He's a lot more interesting to read than Josephus, and he relies heavily upon Josephus for a lot of his, his evidence, except when he doesn't when Josephus' facts disagree with his rational, pre, rationalistic presuppositions. And so I love this one paragraph because it shows that modern scholars reject uh, ancient uh, the t- testimony of ancient witnesses, not just the Bible. It's If it doesn't fit with their preconceived notions of how things would have been, then they just have to discount it. And in one paragraph, he states that he really can't, tr- that, that Josephus stated that one, about one and a half million Jews came to Jerusalem every year Passover. But that's too large. This, eh, Jerusalem was too small. He couldn't handle that many people, so he just discounts it. Then he makes two more statements in the next two sentences. Then he comes right back, and he writes as if he fully believes the factuality of Josephus when Josephus reports that 
154,000 and change uh, lambs were sacrificed at the temple every Passover. The problem is that Josephus got his number of 1.5 million Jews in Jerusalem from multiplying 10 times the number of lambs sacrificed. So if you doubt one number, you have to doubt the other number. You can't accept one without the other. And the reason Josephus multiplied the number of lambs times 10 is because that's what the rabbis did. You had one lamb for every 10 people. That's in the Mishnah. One lamb for every 10 people. So 10 times 154,000 is 1.5 million. Makes sense. But that's, see, that's modern liberal scholarship. But you have to learn when you're reading some, a book like this to just step around those kinds of things, use it as a learning, learning point to test your own ability to notice and answer uh, problems like this and move on. It's a, it's a very interesting, fascinating, uh, fascinating book to read. But Josephus mentions these three groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, and he was identified with the Pharisee. He was part of the Pharisee party. He was from a priestly family, Josephus was, and he became a general in the Jewish army during the time of the Jewish revolt before he was captured by the Romans and <clears throat> and basically became a, a sponsored by uh, the family of Vespasian, and uh, which allowed him to, when he went back to Rome after the revolt, to write his history of the Jews and history of the uh, Jewish revolt. But he tells us a little bit about the Sadducees, and from what Josephus told us and what the New Testament tells us, we learned that the, the uh, Sadducees first really appeared on history. They had ex obviously existed prior to this time, but the first real note that we have of them is around <clears throat> the time of about uh, 125 B.C. This is during the uh, time when John Hyrcanus, one of the Maccabean rulers uh, <clears throat> who ruled from uh, 135 to 104 B.C., uh, shifted from the Pharisee party to the Sadducee party. And uh, <clears throat> so that's the first clear historical reference we have to the Sadducees. They would have been in existence to have had that much power, they would have probably already been in existence for over over 100 years. But what's important is doctrinally they deny the resurrection. And what are the apostles teaching? They're proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of eternal life by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. This was the promise of the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah would come and through the Messiah there would be life eternal life given to Israel. While the doctrine of resurrection, physical bodily resurrection, is not uh, overtly taught in the Old Testament, it is clearly and strongly implied in numerous places, which Jesus brought out in a very sophisticated reasoning when he uh, talked about the fact that God told uh, um, Moses that uh, I am the God of Abraham, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been in the grave for over 400 years. And so it was clear that for God to say I am their God presupposes their continued existence and also the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would uh, have the land as their uh, inheritance, and yet they never had it in their lifetime meant that God envisioned a future time when they would be restored to physical life and they would indeed have the land of promise 
as their possession, as their inheritance. So the doctrine of resurrection is clearly embedded throughout the Old Testament. It was not something that came up or was invented by Jesus or the, or the, new, or the new Testament. The Sadducees rejected the authority of all of what we refer to as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, except for the Torah, the first five books of the of the Old Testament. And so they were, because of their beliefs, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the existence of the soul or spirit, they didn't believe in any future judgment, uh, they did not believe in physical bodily resurrection. For those reasons, they were specifically a little bit uh, incensed about... Uh, about what the apostles or the apostles, uh, the disciples were teaching about the physical bodily uh, resurrection of uh, of Jesus Christ. So we come now to um, <clears throat> the next verse, uh, the next section here. Is that now that we understand a little bit about the Sadducees, they were greatly disturbed that the that the disciples taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection uh, from the dead. And so after they arrested them the first time and after they uh, imprisoned them, kept them in prison overnight, they came back and the next day they gathered all of the Sanhedrin, had this great interrogation, but they really couldn't say or do anything. Uh, they did not beat them at this point. And they ended up commanding them in verse 18 of chapter 4 uh, not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So afterwards, the disciples departed and went back with the, um, <clears throat> with the other disciples and prayed to God rejoicing, recognizing that God had told them and Christ specifically told them to expect opposition. To expect opposition. So we're told in verse uh, 18 that they are, uh, the apostles were arrested and put into a common uh, prison. And then in verse 19, we're told that at night an angel of the Lord, that would bother the Pharisee, I mean the Sadducees, because they don't believe in angels. Uh, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, that term angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a description of the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We know that from various passages that speak uh, of the angel of the Lord being worshipped, indicating that he is definitely God, and of the angel of the Lord, for example, in Zechariah, I think it's one fourteen, the angel of the Lord is speaking to the Lord. So you clearly have two personages there that are both divine, speaking to one another. So, But this, in the New Testament, after the resurrection, we have a reference to an angel of the Lord. It is not the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament, just an angel sent by God. But that night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said to them in verse 20, Go... Stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, this is really the only verse in this section that really demands a little bit of uh, uh, detailed exegesis. The first command is the present middle imperative to go, uh, peruomai. And as a present imperative, it means that this is uh, something they are to do and continuously do. 
The emphasis on a present imperative has to do more with a a normative action. And then the next command is to speak to the people. That also is a present tense command, but it is modified by an aorist participle uh, to stand, and really the standing comes before the speaking. So it should be translated go. After you take your stand in the temple, speak to the people. So it clearly recognizes a proper order of events that they would leave the prison, they would go and take up a position in the temple precincts where they could teach, and then they were commanded to speak to the people all of the words of this life. Now, what's interesting is the phraseology here, the term, the Greek term used that is translated words here is not the word logoi, which would be the plural log from logos, but it's the word rhema. Now, rhema is an interesting word because rhema is used in the Septuagint primarily to translate uh, anytime there is a word from the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew is a devar from the Lord, and anytime you have that word devar uh, related to Yahweh, it has to do with God's revelation, and he, in many cases it has to do with a some sort of prophetic announcement. Uh, it is uh, the common Old Testament uh, or Septuagint translation of Devar is Ramah. So Luke picks it up and uses it mostly in that sense in both his gospel and in Acts, the sense of a specific message of God's promise. And for Luke, this is a promise that has been fulfilled that needs to be proclaimed. So he is saying, speak to the people. Uh, he understands the angel saying, speak to the people. All of the words are the revelatory, the, the promise and fulfillment that God has made of this life. And this life is a reference to the life of the Messiah who is raised from the dead. Now, all of that is implied by the verbiage used by the angel, that this is the fulfillment of God's uh promises in the Old Testament, and the message is related to life, and this life is manifest in uh, Jesus, who is the Messiah. So the apostles are obedient to God, and verse 21, we're told, when they heard this, they entered the temple early in the morning. See, they, I knew they were morning people. I knew that uh, if you're really going to be blessed, you get up early in the morning. Those who sleep late just miss all of the, all of the uh, divine blessing. I think there's a passage in Proverbs about that. Um, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together. So now we have opposition again. Uh, with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. See, they, they hear about all of this, but they're still confused as to where the apostles are preaching. So they send to the prison guards, and the prison guards, we're told in the next few verses, uh, came. They don't find them anywhere in the prison. Uh, they returned back to the Sanhedrin and reported that, uh, verse 23, we found the prison shut securely. The guards were standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, no one was inside. Now, in the high priest, the captain of the temple, we've already met him back in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, the apostles. So we, we run into the captain of the temple again. This was the highest Jewish officer 
on the Temple Mount, assigned with the responsibilities of keeping order on the temple. And the chief priests heard these things. They wondered what the outcome would be. They're, they're, they're insecure. Whenever you have a tyrant, there is a measure of insecurity because at the core of tyranny, there is always this, this, this desire to have tremendous power that it, they know at their core is illegitimate. So they begin to wonder what is going to happen here as uh, they had these guys locked up tight and they managed to escape and nobody knew it. They just passed through the, through the uh, walls and through the doors like a ghost. So now verse 25, so one came and told him, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. A direct contradiction to the command that the Sadducees had given them back in uh, chapter 4, verse 18, which shows that now we have an authority issue. The ego of the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees is on the line. Their authority, their prestige, and their power is now being threatened by uh, these upstart Galileans. So they uh, <clears throat> sent them, the captain of the temple, along with his officers, to arrest them, which they did without violence. That's noted in verse 26, uh, because they feared the people. Notice this fear on the part of the leadership here is that there is an awareness that if they go too far in exercising their authority, that the people will uh, could very easily revolt against them. So they uh, and stoned them. So when they brought them, we're told in verse 27, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, uh, "Didn't we strictly command you not to teach in his name?" Well, of course they did. And uh, now he says, uh, "You have uh, he accuses them of filling Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us." Now, just as a side note, this verse and the next verse are verses that were taken out of context by Christians in the early church. And by the early church, I mean during the uh, post-apostolic period, the, the period uh, after the apostolic fathers in the early uh, third century, to justify a hostile attitude towards the Jewish people as Christ killers. The Jewish people were not alone in their condemnation of the Messiah, Pilate was, the Romans were the ones who executed him. The issue is that the Jewish people and the Gentiles, as a combined effort, indicate all of the human race rejected Jesus' offer as being the Messiah, and he was executed by the human race. It is completely inappropriate and wrong to assign guilt to the Jewish people as Christ killers. This horrible doctrine of anti-Semitism has plagued Western Christianity since the early Middle Ages, and it found its full flowering in uh, the philosophy of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in the uh, early 20th century, but it has flowered in many different ways and one of the most current forms. And if you doubt me, there is a host of literature on this, I remember several years ago getting in an argument slash discussion with a longtime uh, a friend of mine, and uh, he made the point, was trying to make the point that anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism was not anti-Semitism. And I just looked at him and I said, go read about 20 or 20,000 pages 
of scholarly documentation that anti-Semitism is manifested today as anti-Zionism. And don't give me this ignorant opinion of yours. Go read something. I've read, uh, I've spent thousands of hours studying in this particular area. And the reason, and it's a sophisticated argument that some people just don't have the IQ to understand, the reason anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is, number one, anti-Semitism has been rejected as something bad and negative by most of Western Europe. It's not socially acceptable except in certain quarters. And so nobody really wants to promote themselves as being anti-Semitic. Actually, in the mid-19th century, the term anti-Semitism was coined as a positive for those who stood up for racial purity, uh, not only in Germany, but also in Western, Western Europe. So up until uh, uh, the Germans in uh, the 30s and the 40s, anti-Semitism was a positive term for those who wished to maintain uh, ra- this, this false concept of racial purity. After World War II, the Jewish people recognized that there was only one way that they could truly, truly protect themselves. There was only one nation where they could possibly provide protection for their own people, and that was their own nation. And that the groundwork for that nation had been laid by numerous people, Christians, non-Christians, Gentiles, and others. I've done a complete study of this in many other uh, areas from the early 19th century leading up through culminating in the Balfour Declaration and then its inclusion uh, in the San Remo, um, San, Ru- San Remo resolutions, which gave it the force of international law. The San Remo resolution coming out of World War I was then included within the Treaty of Severus, which again gave it the force of international law. And on the basis of the San Remo resolution, uh, which had the authority to set the boundaries for modern Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, um, and uh, <clears throat> and Syria. Uh, the authority that was given to to the uh, four great powers coming out of World War One to set those boundaries with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire was the same authority that gave them in the same document the right to establish the boundaries that that document stated were for a national homeland for the Jewish people, and that included all of the land west of the Jordan River and all of the land east of the Jordan River, which is now called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. All of that land was by international law agreed to be a homeland, a national homeland uh, for the Jewish people. Due to the fact that the, that the uh, French failed to back uh, King Faisal in Syria after, after World War I, and the Syrians kicked him out, and the British had to fulfill their pledge to him, uh, coming out of World War One, that they would back an Arab revolt. If, if the Arabs would revolt against the Ottomans and uh, and their fight against the Germans, then the British would back uh, uh, a a Hashemite kingdom. And so uh, Churchill hated to do it because he was very pro-Israel and pro-Zionist, but he had to uh, cut off the the eastern everything east of the Jordan and and establish a Hashemite kingdom there. He didn't want to do it, and in fact, it was illegal. It was it breached the the authority that had been given to the mandatory powers of France and Britain uh, by the League of Nations in the Treaty of Severus and in the San Remo Resolution. So that was completely illegal, and everything since then has been illegal based on international law. 
And so it proves, once again, that the United Nations doesn't care anything about international law, and any country that goes along with UN Resolution uh, 151, which was in 1940, November of 1947, which was designed to uh, br- even further break up the West Bank and to give part of it to the Arabs. Incidentally, most people, most ignorant, ignorant, historically ignorant, anti-Semitic-influenced people today think that UN Resolution 151 by, in November of 1951 established the legitimate right of, of, of the Jewish nation, and it didn't. It was a non-binding resolution, and the Arabs rejected it. What did the Arabs do? They invaded and attacked Israel six months later in May, in really actually in April of 1948. They never accepted it. So UN Resolution 151 was dead on arrival. And uh, the UN Resolution, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the exact number now, 252 or 247, whatever it was at the end of, uh, at the, end of uh, the uh, Seven Day War in 1967, uh, which, one, which even that recognized that the 1947 or 1949 armistice line was not designed to be a border. And yet we have this, these historically ignorant, legally, legally ignorant, anti-Semitically cloaked administration officials today who want to go back to the 1949 borders. They ought to be thrown out of office on their ear because they're so ignorant of international law. But it's not just them. It's like 99% of Western lawyers and Western politicians are ignorant. The only person who's getting it right right now, and this is not an endorsement of anybody's candidacy, is New Gingrich, that the Arabs were given all of the land in Syria in the Ottoman Empire, I mean, in, in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Saudi Arabia, in the land across the Jordan, and in the Lebanon to be the national homeland for the Arab people. The land west of the Jordan River, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, was given to the Jewish people as their national homeland, like about 4% of the total land mass. And yet we continuously think that the poor Palestinians and the only real Palestinians are the Jews. The only the Arabs that live there don't deserve any of that. But all of this goes back to the fact that people just don't want to pay attention uh, to law or the absolutes uh, absolutes of God. So back to our text after that little historical analysis. Um, Peter, Peter responds to this same kind of uh, this anti this uh, this this mandate from the council by saying um, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Now this isn't a basis for anti-Semitism. It is a historically conditioned comment. These Sadducees and these Pharisees that are in front of him are the very ones who turn Jesus over to the Roman authorities. He's not blaming the Jewish people or the Jewish nation for the death of Jesus. He is assigning guilt to whom guilt belongs, which is that group of people who were in front of him. And any time there is anti-Semitism, any time in history, it always goes back to this, this claim of being a Christ killer, which, as I've just shown, is completely completely false and always has uh, 
horrible effects in history because God says he's going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who, who curse Israel. So Peter goes on to say in verse 32, we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. little dig there because they don't have the Holy Spirit because they haven't obeyed God, so they didn't particularly like that, and that's what generated their response in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens at that point, but here I want to stop and focus on the principle that Peter lays down, which is that we are to obey God rather than man. This is the principle that the only time a Christian is authorized to uh, disobey God, I mean disobey man, any human authority, whether it's a father, whether it's parents, whether it's the school, whether it's government official, the only time a Christian is authorized by Scripture to disobey an authority is when that authority is mandating, demanding that the Christian disobey. Now, pay attention to this. This is very important, that that the authority is demanding that the Christian disobey specific revelation from God not just some abstract principle. Now, if you can go out on the Internet and you can find a number of people in different uh, political persuasions who try to say that, that there is a right to violate the authority of, of the government if they are violating a constitutional principle. Last time I looked, since we're not Mormons, we do not believe the Constitution is divinely inspired by God uh, like, the, like, like Scripture. Mormons actually believe that they, because of their doctrine of uh, pre-existence of the souls. They actually believe that the souls of all of the American founding fathers were sent to earth during the time of the American Revolution specifically to write all of those founding documents, and they believe that the founding documents of the United States were divinely inspired, breathed out by God in this unique way to placing them on almost the same level of Scripture. Now, we don't believe that. So since we're not Mormons, we can't go to the Constitution, the Declaration, and say that is the, that is the Word of God. Uh, what we have in Scripture are specific commands of God. When God says that you are to pray and the governing authority says don't pray, like, like with Daniel uh, under the uh, Medes and the Persians in Daniel chapter 6, um, and Daniel disobeyed the law not to pray by going back to his room and praying in public, that is disobedience to authority. It's obeying God rather than man, though. It is, we are to obey the authority of God ultimately unless some human authority calls for a direct and specific uh, uh, disobedience of God. God says don't do something and the government says to do something, then it has to be specific. You can't, ju- there has to be a specific mandate uh, in the scriptures. You can't say, like one friend of mine tried to argue, well, a 30 or 40 percent taxation is, is tyrannical, and that really goes beyond what the Mosaic law authorized. And so since the government's out of line by having a 40 or 30, 40, 50 percent tax rate, then we don't have to pay it. That's not what the Scripture says. There's no place in the Scripture that says, thou shalt not pay more than 30 percent income tax. That's what you need in order to get that argument to work, and the Scriptures just don't do that. Now, we live in a hostile world. 
We live in the cosmic system, and we are always going to be opposed uh, opposed by those who oppose God. Jesus recognized this and taught his disciples what to expect in John chapter 15. After the uh, uh, discourse on abiding in him, Jesus then began to talk about, on the last part of John chapter 15, about what the believers could expect. He says to, said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The cosmic system hates us, hates us. Now, it may cloak it in all kinds of uh, uh, disguises, but the cosmic system hates us. Verse 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. That's why the world loves certain television preachers because they are preaching a cosmic gospel. They are preaching an ecumenical gospel. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's no guarantee no matter what, where, what country you were born, no matter how wonderful this nation was when you were born, there's no guarantee that you and I will not be persecuted for our faith in the Scripture and in Jesus Christ before we die. There's no guarantee that that will happen. That's the trend of history. Verse 21, Jesus said, All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. See, Jesus came and exposed their sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And he goes on to explain that, and he says in verse chapter 16, verse 1, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So just something that can be expected throughout history. So what happens? How, what, how do we handle opposition? Well, in Romans chapter 1, or 13, rather, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, we are told that every authority, even the unbelieving pagan authorities of Rome, and Paul wrote this during the about the third or fourth year of, of uh, Nero's reign, and he wrote this just before Nero's, Nero killed his mother, and just before uh, everything turned bad in Nero's life and he went crazy. These are referred to as the good years. And so Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, but there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, I have heard an argument that the authority in this country is the Constitution, and that's true that the authority in this country is not necessarily the president or the Congress, but it is the Constitution. And that argument is set forth by people who wish to say that when the Congress or the president violate the Constitution, that our, our, our responsibility is to obey the Constitution and not the individual who is in office. But that is not what this chapter says, and you better pay attention. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who re uh, resist will bring judgment on themselves. Look at verse 3. He shifts from the term authorities to rulers. He's using them synonymously. 
He's not talking about abstract legal authority. He's talking about that, that the abstract legal authority is always instantiated in a person. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? See, he moves back and forth from ruler to authority as if they're equally synonymous. Now, this is Paul writing during the good years of Nero. You think things change under the bad years when he's persecuting Christians? Well, Peter, the same Peter who tells the Sanhedrin twice, we have to obey God rather than men, says in chapter 2, verse 13 of his first epistle, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Obviously not the ordinance that directly contradict specific commands of Scripture. Not principles, but specific revelation. Because otherwise Peter would be inconsistent. And he's not stupid. He may be a Gal- may have been a Galilean pr- uh, a fisherman, but he wasn't stupid. He's not going to do one thing and then contradict himself when he writes. He said, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. See, it's individuals, not just some abstract authority. The king, the person as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, that is, obeying authorities in context, by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Now, in Scripture, we've seen that there are several examples of disobedience to authority for legitimate reasons. The Egyptian midwives in the Old Testament. We also have the example, a very interesting example, in First First Samuel chapter 14. So the first principle we see here is that all authorities and those who occupy the positions of authority are established by God. Romans 13, 1 through 4, and First uh, Peter chapter, chapter 2, uh, 13 through 16. Second principle, the only time a Christian is authorized to disobey an authority is when that authority is directly commanding Christ, the Christian to do something contrary to a specific command or prohibition by God. Rebellion and the execution or assassination of a government leader is never authorized by Scripture. Point number three, First Samuel 14, read it later. It's a long chapter. We're not going to take time to go through it. We have an episode where King Saul is leading the army of Israel against the Philistines at the Battle of Beth-Avon. Saul issued a foolish command. The command of the king is law. So he issues a command that no one is to eat that day until they finally defeat the Philistines. And if they do, they will forfeit their life. Well, Jonathan, his son, wasn't present when he issued the command. He comes in later in the day, and as the Israelite army is marching off against the Philistines, they go through this area where there's a lot of honey. Everybody is so scared of this command from Saul that nobody reaches out to get any honey, and they're starving. And they've been on this military campaign all day, and they're out of energy. And Jonathan, who doesn't know about the command, takes his staff, and he swipes the honeycomb as he goes by and pulls off a glob of honey and eats it. And the text says his eyes brightened. He's getting energy. He's getting nourishment restored. He's ready to go into battle. And he tries to talk others into doing it, and they won't do it because of the king's command. They go into battle, and Jonathan wins the day. 
Saul finds out afterwards, and Saul is going to execute Jonathan. But the people stop him. It's an unjust law. He would be violating the law of Moses. It was a foolish law, and the people intervene to stop him. They don't remove him from from his throne. They don't execute him. Later on, we saw the examples. This is the fourth point in 1 Samuel 24, where Saul was pursuing David to kill him, to assassinate him. Saul has been rejected by God. He's out of fellowship. He's beyond the pale of the Mosaic law. He's seeking to commit murder. David, we would think, would have every right to defend himself and to take Saul's life. Saul has committed uh, dozens of murders already, including wiping out all the priests at Nob. And so you'd think that David would have every reason in the world to, to save the nation, protect the nation by taking Saul's life. Saul, as we read, goes into a cave in order to relieve himself. David is hiding in the cave. Saul is so close to him that David could easily have just taken his sword and just run Saul through. Instead, he takes his extremely sharp sword and just cuts off part of the hem of his garment. And when Saul came out, then David came out of the cave after him, and he waves his garment. He says, Saul, I could have taken your life. I don't want to kill you. But David is guilty, feels guilty, because he showed disrespect for the authority of the king by even cutting off the hem of his garment. That tells us that, that no matter how out of line a government, governing king can be, we don't have the authority from God to rebel against him or to take his life. And this is clearly documented uh, later in Scripture. Three examples come out of Daniel. In Daniel 1, Daniel and his friends are mandated to eat a diet that is prohibited by the Mosaic Law. Daniel gives us a wonderful example here of how we're to handle that. He goes and presents a case to the chief eunuch that if you let us eat our diet for a few weeks and everybody else sticks on their diet, we'll show you at the end of a few weeks we'll perform better, we'll be smarter, we'll be in better health, and we'll be more physically fit than the other guys. He appeals to the bottom line of what really matters to the, the chief eunuch. The, the, the spirituality has no meaning for them. Now let me give you a modern example of, uh, of, this, kind of, a th- uh, of this kind of a thing. This happened to a friend, uh, someone, a friend of a friend of someone we know, uh, recently in a university in the Baltimore area. Uh, she went to this school on a scholarship. As part of this scholarship, she was required to take a number of courses, one of which was a course in lesbian studies. There were 29 girls and one boy in the lesbian studies class. Probably 10 or 12 of these girls were Christians. Uh, one of these girls was named Shariah. She's a Persian Christian young lady and the daughter of a, young, uh, a, daughter of a man who has actually spoken in this pulpit. She was on a scholarship to this school. She was required to take the course. If she didn't take the course, she'd be kicked out and lose her scholarship. Beginning on the very first day, and I've heard this from other, uh, other young women who've had to take courses like this or women's studies courses, they were re- the students were required to watch a semi-pornographic movie uh, with a lot of uh, lesbian action. These films were going to be a regular event in every class throughout the semester. 
the professorette, as I will call her, announced that she would be a, consider herself a failure as a teacher if anyone in the class at the end of the semester were not uh, pro-lesbian in their beliefs, and uh, this made young Shariah very uncomfortable. But you see there was something different about young Shariah. She was not only a Christian, but her father has been teaching Charlie Clough's framework series in his Persian Christian church uh, for many years, and she considers Charlie Clough Uncle Charlie. So she decided to go to Charlie and her father to get counsel, and they suggested that she take her case to the academic dean and to see if there was some solution. So she appealed to the academic dean who told her that no, she, doesn't have to, she didn't have to stay in that course that semester, but she could take it uh, later on in the, in the summer. And so she was allowed to drop the course uh, with the proviso that she would eventually take the course. As the semester went by, other Christian girls in that course uh, became increasingly uncomfortable, and they told her how courageous she was, and they envied her because she had taken the stand, and they were stuck with this uh, lesbian propaganda in this in this classroom. And so her, uh, her reputation uh, was enhanced because of that. But those other girls represent most Christian, most evangelicals today. They just roll over and take it without appealing in a winsome way to the appropriate authority. But at the end of the semester, as the Lord would have it, the lesbian professor was fired. The academic dean had to let her go because of numerous other complaints And this happened at a secular university outside of Baltimore. Now, that's just one example. There are many other ways that uh, Christians need to be involved in these kinds of things. Another example is that of a uh, young Christian woman who was working on her master's degree at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, She was... um, in a counseling program, a psychotherapy program, and in 2009 she was assigned a potential client who was a homosexual who was really seeking affirmation of his homosexual uh, orientation from a counselor because she was a Christian and she was an African-American Christian. Because she was a Christian, her religious beliefs were being violated, and so she was permitted to refer the client to another counselor. But she was told that she had to remain in the counseling program and would have to under, and it, that in order for her to remain in the counseling program, she would have to undergo a remediation program that would help her see the error of her ways. When she refused, a faculty committee dismissed her from the program, and she brought a lawsuit against Eastern Michigan University. This is correct. This is appealing on the basis of law. So the court case made its way up in the lower courts. They found in favor of Eastern Michigan University, but when it went to the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'm reading this from a news article that's date was January 27, 2012, so this just happened a few days ago, they stated that a university cannot compel a student to alter or violate her belief systems based on a phantom policy as the price for obtaining a degree. Why treat war differently? That her conflict arose from religious convictions is not a good answer. That her conflict arose from religious convictions for which the department at times showed little tolerance is a worse answer. 
The court also said Ward was willing to work with all clients and to respect the school's affirmation directives in doing so. That is why she asked to refer gay and lesbian clients and some heterosexual clients if the conversation required her to affirm their sexual practices. What more could the rule require? Surely, for example, the ban on discrimination against clients based on their religion, one, pay attention. The Supreme, the, I mean, this Sixth Circuit Court was extremely wise in the way they handled this. They said, number one, uh, would they require a Muslim counselor to tell a Jewish client that his religious beliefs are correct if the conversation took a turn in that direction? They said, two, does, uh, their, their policy does not require an atheist counselor to tell a person of faith that there is a God if the client is wrestling with faith-based issues. In other words, the Sixth Circuit Court is saying, you people didn't think through the implications of this. If you're telling your counselors that they have to affirm the beliefs of anybody who comes in front of them, then what do you do if you've got some uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Zionist, Sharia law-loving Muslim coming to a Jewish counselor? Does a Jewish counselor have to affirm their beliefs? This is insane. You know, somebody on the high court has a little uh, knowledge and information. So the, the, the lower court ruling was overturned and... Uh, uh, they were told, the school was told, that whether or not they agreed with a student's brand of Christianity, they had to respect the student's religious beliefs no matter, uh, no matter what they were. I've got a couple of other examples, but one that I want to uh, uh, read, I thought I had printed it out earlier. Maybe I did not. I thought I put it in here. Anyway, I w- I'm going to send this out on an email this came out this morning. Maybe some of you got it. It was sent by uh, Charlie Clough, uh, and with it is a letter from his son, Jonathan, that there's a recent mandate coming down from Health and Human Services that is going to mandate that every, every organization, every hospital, every college, every organization, no matter what their religious beliefs are, have to participate in funding um, uh, various birth control uh, devices. Now, this doesn't necessarily affect something you and I would would focus on and believe in, but it is it does attack every uh, Catholic institution in in this country, and it mandates that they uh, they have to participate in something that violates their religious convictions. And it, the law, is, uh, First Amendment rights, are based on the fact that that people who have specific, clearly stated religious convictions have the right of conscience. This is in the legal literature of this nation. And for the the government to force them to violate that at any level is a violation of the First Amendment. Now, this is the same principle that came under attack in San Francisco last year when the San Francisco City Council wanted to pass an ordinance banning circumcision in San Francisco. This circumcision is a significant part of uh, the beliefs of Jews. And so this, you may or may not uh, believe in circumcision, and that's not the issue. The issue is that every group has the right to practice within the legitimate framework their religious, uh, their their religious convictions, and the government is prohibited from interfering. But these directives that come down as part of the 
uh, Obamacare legislation uh, just show that the federal government is, uh, again, wanting to attack Christians and Christian beliefs. Last week, as you read this email, last week what happened is every Catholic pulpit in this country read from their pulpit what the issue was, taught their congregations what the biblical and legal basis was for why they should contact their congressman and why they should uh, encourage their congressional representatives to vote for a bill that has been uh, set forth in Congress in order to protect uh, religious liberties from intrusion from the federal government. What did most evangelical churches do? Probably pretty much what we did. They had their usual announcements and went on, had their service, everybody went home, and nobody mentioned it. But these kinds of things... It, it, once the camel's nose gets under the tent, it it threatens everyone, everyone's religious liberties and the interpretation of the First Amendment, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Mormon, Christian, it doesn't matter. Everybody has the same rights, and if the federal government comes in and starts dictating what is acceptable and what is not and mandating monies, then we're all in trouble. We have to be involved. We are in an age today, and this is legitimate. This is following the pattern of those Jews who told Saul, you can't, you can't enforce an unjust law. You cannot take Jonathan's life. It is not overthrowing the government. It is not resisting it in an illegitimate way. It is simply uh, standing up and making their voice heard so that the that true justice is being carried out. And this is exactly the kinds of things that Christians need to be doing. We're living in a terrible time today when there are forces at work who have, who have achieved a status of legitimization in Washington who seek to do nothing more than to completely destroy the impact and influence of biblical Christianity and religion as a whole. And if Christians do not take a stand and do what they can within the law by being involved legitimately as members of this nation, citizens of this nation, then uh, if we come under tyranny, it'll be our own fault. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and realize the importance of the principle that we are to obey you rather than man but also to recognize that we have a responsibility as citizens to do everything, including our responsibilities as citizens, to, uh, the to your glory, that, which means that we should be as involved as possible in every area of government as good citizens. We should be the best citizens, the greatest citizens of this nation, because we have a better reason and a greater motivation to be a, a wonderful citizen than anyone else. We should be the most involved, we should be the most active, and we should be the most informed uh, above all others. And sadly, the opposite is too often the case. Father, ultimately we recognize that the real issue is the gospel, that unless there is a, a people that turn to you, a people who put the truth of your word first, it doesn't matter who's in charge, it doesn't matter what the politics are, it doesn't matter uh, what the political party is, it will come to naught. It will ultimately collapse because it is built on arrogance and it is built on a false view of reality. The only real hope is Jesus Christ. The only real hope is the truth of your word. And only on that rock can we have stability. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.